Please be seated. Good evening to you. I was looking at my stopwatch here, and it was at uh, six plus hours. So I didn't know if I'd like fallen asleep in the pulpit and preached all afternoon and uh, got back up here. I never turned it off this morning. Okay, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 49, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, you'll be fairly lost without a Bible. And uh, so men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And just wave, get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. It'll be marked to our passage tonight. That way you can read along as you're listening and the Word will have double impact uh, upon you. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. When we come to chapters 49 through 57 of the book of Isaiah, it all the way through the book, as we've mentioned before, it is nicknamed the fifth gospel. Uh, It is the gospel maybe stronger than any other thing that could be called the gospel in the Old Testament because of its revelation of Jesus, speaking to us of his virgin birth, speaking to us of what tribe he would be born from, and so forth. So much revelation in there about him. But now when we come into chapters 49 through 57, it earns this title in earnest. Some of the most amazing descriptions of Jesus to be found in all of the Bible, really rivaling the description of Jesus in his uh, actual incarnation and in his public ministry as is described in uh, the Gospels. So a fabulous section of Scripture that we are uh, coming into. And at this point, Isaiah moves from the subject now, beginning in chapter 49, the subject of the deliverance of the children of Israel from their captivity in Babylon to prophesying of a redeemer who would come into the world not only to redeem uh, a redeemer in which who would express a greater redemption than God redeeming the children of Israel out of Babylon, a redeemer that would be sent into the world to deliver us out of the bondage of sin and of death. And so uh, here is this description he begins chapter 49 with a description of this messiah this servant that would be sent remember isaiah is written 400 or 740 years before christ and so this description of jesus before he came into the world and what a description we turn to tonight he said listen o coastlands to me and take heed you peoples from afar and so uh, god speaks to Isaiah to get the attention of the whole world, uh, both Jew and Gentile, because he's going to proclaim to them magnificent things concerning the Savior that he was going to send into the world. And here begins this description now of Jesus. The Lord has called me, and you notice that word me is capitalized. Again, it is the Messiah. It is Jesus speaking uh, concerning himself, his life, his ministry. The Lord, that is the Father, has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. And so the Messiah would come into the world just as Jesus did, not just this random birth in human history, but he was called by God. He came into the world with a mission, with a purpose uh, that God wanted to perform through his life. 
Notice, too, as he talks about uh, the fact that Messiah declares that while he was still, would still be in the inward parts of his mother's being, mother being formed in her womb, that God would name him and then reveal his name, his God-given name, uh, to, uh, the, uh, to man, uh, that, uh, that he would reveal it to a man. And we know that that man was, was Joseph. And so God will name him, man will not name him, and God will make the name of this Messiah known uh, to mankind. And of course, this was fulfilled in uh, the Gospels. We read about it when Joseph Mary uh, is pregnant uh, by virtue of a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph is thinking about, he is betrothed to her. He's thinking about putting her away. This is kind of unheard of. So he thinks she's been unfaithful to him. And he's going to put her away. And then the angel of the Lord, we're told, appeared to him in a dream. Said, Joseph, the son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And then here it is in fulfillment of Isaiah uh, chapter 49, verse 1. He said, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Joseph and Mary did not name Jesus. Just like Isaiah said, God would name this Messiah and then reveal it to man and not only reveal his name, you shall call his name Jesus, but then reveal the calling for which he came into the world, for he will save his people from their sins. Just a marvel, really. Uh, just even one verse of this description of our Savior long before he was born into human history. And he has made, the Messiah continues to speak concerning himself, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. And so the Messiah's speech would be like a sharp sword. It would cut. And cutting, of course, has an element of bringing health uh, with something as uh, uh, infectious in order to bring health. It needs to be lanced. Uh, so cutting can uh, uh, do something like that, bring health to a situation. It can also make something very crystal clear that wouldn't otherwise be clear. We remember when the Jewish religious leaders sent uh, their kind of religious police force to go and arrest Jesus. Uh, they wanted to arrest him. They had orders to arrest him. They came back empty-handed before the religious leaders, and they said, "'Where is Jesus?' And they answered very simply, no man ever spoke like that man. They came within the sound of his voice and heard what it was that he was teaching. And his word was like a sword. They'd never heard anything like it before in their life. They said, how could we arrest a man like that? Remember Jesus when he spoke to the religious leaders of the Jews who were not helping people come into contact with God or to come to know God, but taking people further away from God. And Jesus spoke to them, and he told them that they were of their father, the devil. Ouch! That's a sharp sword. That's pointed, isn't it? Very, very direct. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. That is a pointed claim of Jesus concerning his uniqueness and salvation that is found in him that cuts even to this day. And so the teaching of Jesus, incomparable in human history, nothing like it in human history, and likened to a sword, 
uh, before he even came into the world. In the shadow of his hand, that is the Father's hand, he has hidden me, Messiah declares, and he made me a polished shaft, and in his quiver he has hidden me. And this speaks of the years of obscurity for Jesus. He began his public ministry at 30 years of age. Uh, He died on the cross for our sins, was buried and resurrected at the age of 33 and a half. So for 30 years he lived in virtual obscurity. And it wasn't until his water baptism and he began his public ministry there, baptized by John the Baptizer at the Jordan River. But before all of that, he was hidden away in a very obscure village at the time known as Nazareth. But it wasn't wasted time. While he was in that place, he was being polished like an arrow. He was being prepared for his uh, ministry, that he would be something in the hands of the Father that could be shot and hit its target. And the target was to provide salvation for you and I. I remember when I was um, in elementary school, maybe seventh grade, uh, somewhere in there, I took up archery. My brother and I had no more business having a bow and arrows in our hands than we had any business having a slingshot or dirt cloths. We were just dangerous as could be. I remember we went to Ridgewood Junior High School one time. We got this whole quiver of arrows and and this bow and everything. And we just decided to shoot the arrow up as high as we could shoot it, straight above us. Straight above us. Dumb as a rock. Dumb as a rock. Well, we lost sight of it. They had no idea where it was going to come down. Took off running, running. And it was really weird because the arrow came right down where we were standing. One of us shot it straight up. God was protecting. How many of you know God protects you even before you come to know him and you look back? But we joined this archery club. We went like twice. My parents weren't really consistent about these things. And uh, so, but we were there and, and they had some real archers there with the bows that were like, I don't know how many pounds and all of the gadgets and everything. Like you see these people on TV, bow hunting. And the guy shot this arrow and he was using metal arrows and he shot this arrow straight in the middle of the bullseye. Wow! Could not get any better than that. I mean, I was ready to get his autograph. Pulled out another arrow shot it right into the end of that arrow. And both arrows were sticking out, one out of the other. And so these metal arrows that that, uh, he was using, uh, perfection, go exactly where it, it needs to go. And, of course, Jesus, in all of that time, being prepared for his public ministry to wonderfully accomplish what God had sent him into the world to do. So often, because we're very... Mm, impatient as a culture, very, very impatient as a culture. And it carries over into our Christian life, and we don't even realize that. And we can really fight against God's long seasons of preparation in our life so that when He uh, finally uses us to do what He's told us He's going to do through our life, by the time He finally gets uh, to that, Uh, sometimes a long season of preparation has occurred so that we will be successful at that. And so Jesus, he had a long period 
of preparation for his public ministry. Oftentimes we'll be long prepared for what it is that God has called us to. Don't be discouraged when that season uh, takes some time. Hold on to the promise. God is polishing you as a, as a, making you into a polished shaft, even as he did with Jesus. Different calling, different purposes, but the same thing. Speaking of these years of obscurity where he was hidden away uh, from everyone prior to the beginning of his public ministry. And he, uh, that is the father, said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And so Messiah said he would be the means by which the father would be glorified. And over and over and over again, when Jesus taught, um, we're told that the people glorified God on the basis of his teaching. When Jesus healed people, he uh, gave sight to the blind, he cleansed the lepers and so forth. The response of the people was they glorified uh, God. All of it in fulfillment of the prophecy that's given right here in Isaiah uh, chapter uh, 49. Notice that the Messiah here in verse 3 is referred to uh, by God the Father as Israel. And that causes a lot of people to then take verses 3 and 4 and say, all right, he was talking about the Messiah in verses 1 and 2. And in verses 3 and 4, he started to talk about the nation of Israel. And then in verse 5, he starts to talk about the Messiah. Uh, again. And so uh, they start to ascribe this to the nation of Israel rather than to the Messiah. And if you have a new King James on your lap, you look at it and you see the me that is there in verse 3. Is it lower cases? They are ascribing it to the nation of Israel and not to the Messiah uh, because they think that always the mention of Israel is referring to the nation. But uh, the Messiah here is talking about the, the fact that God declares him to be his servant and to be uh, and, and uh, uh, calls him, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified, in the sense that Jacob, who was the father, the patriarch of the twelve tribes of Israel, when uh, he had that kind of uh, rough night with the Lord at the river Jabbok, and he had his hip pulled out of joint. And God renamed him from Jacob, which means supplanter or heel catcher uh, or the guy that trips up anyone in front of him so he can get ahead of them. Uh, he was a very talented human being, Jacob was, very smart human being. He knew how to get on the best side of any deal he was involved in. And uh, he wrestles with God all night, and God says, what's your name? He said, Jacob, supplanter, heel catcher, uh, come out on top of any <laughs> contract that I sign. And God says, I'm going to give you a, a new name. I'm going to call you Israel. And the word Israel, or the name Israel, means ruled by God or governed by God. It was one of the greatest things. It was the greatest thing that happened in Jacob's life was to go from being who and what he was and the strengths of his old carnal nature and trying to live for God and be for God and get ahead in life and all of these things, come to the end of his rope now and now be ruled or governed by God and a whole new chapter opened up in his life. And so when God calls the Messiah Israel, he's saying that the Messiah will be uniquely governed by God. He will be uniquely ruled by God. Um, he will bring glory to the Father in a way that even the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, did not. In fact, as Isaiah is writing this prophecy, 
They're about to go into their Babylonian captivity. They weren't concerned about the glory of God at all. So it speaks of of, uh, the Messiah even as we go into chapter 3. And it continues then in verse verse 3, continues in verse 4. And then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Imagine that. Jesus discouraged during the course of his public ministry. And for most of his ministry, he began, his ministry breaks up into three distinct parts, each constituting a block of a year. The first year of his public ministry, uh, the year of obscurity. Nobody really knew about him yet. And then the second year was the year of popularity. He could have become elected president at that point in time. And then the final year was the year of opposition. And by the time he ends up hanging on that cross, there is very little outwardly that looks like uh, he spent his life for anything worthwhile, that he died on the cross for anything that was going to make a difference in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, let alone make a difference throughout human history. But sometimes God calls us to do things. We spend our lives in a certain way. And the fruit of that is somewhere down the line and very often on the other side of our death. I think of how often uh, so much of what we do in our service to the Lord, we will never see the fruit of it in our lifetimes. We'll never see it. Especially if you work with children and you minister to youth and disciple them in their relationship with the Lord. You and I, if we're older, we're going to be long gone before we see uh, any kind of uh, sometimes the fullness of the fruit that will happen in in their lives. I remember when I, my brother and I, and uh, my two younger sisters, during a junior high block in, uh, of time, my mom started taking us to a Protestant church, Valley Bible Chapel in Napa. And uh, we would go to church, and in the junior high years, we would sit and listen and all. And I often look back and think about uh, John Callison. I remember his name. My heart is broken for him. He must have worked with us and thought, they are never, I am talking, I might as well be talking to this table. This table is going to end up saved before those Kyle boys end up saved. And we look like, I mean, we took, they give us a little bit of money, you know, to, to give into the offering. We'd slip over just a block away was Lawler's Liquors. We'd buy candy with it. And if that wasn't enough, we'd open the candy during the services. Crinkle, crinkle, crinkle all the way through. I mean, it looked like nothing, nothing in John Callison's lifetime. And then somewhere along the line, 1980, the light goes on for me as an adult. Long, long, long after those years. And God then started to do something in my life and turning me to Him. And so often it's that way. But it can be discouraging if we just look at the fruit uh, right at the moment. And that's why we have to commit to God's call and, and trust the fruit uh, to Him. And so even Jesus, kind of not seeing much initially for all the sacrifice he made. I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. It's all empty. And yet surely he reminds himself, my just reward is with the Lord and my work 
with my God. And so uh, it didn't look like much, but he continued just to trust in the Father to make much of his life, much of his death, burial, and resurrection. And so the Father did. And so the Lord will do with our lives. We are, after all, as Christians, uh, the body of Christ. But John puts this so clearly, what Jesus faced in John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world didn't know him. And he came to his own, and the world and his own received him not. And so it didn't look like much, and it was exactly as Isaiah prophesied here. And now my, now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant in order to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. And so he came into the world in order to bring the Jews back to God. And then he goes on to talk about the Gentiles as well. In verse 6, indeed, he says, It is too small a thing for you that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. I'm sending you into the world as the Messiah, not only to save the Jews and to preserve, uh, restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, um, how many of you are Gentiles? Gentiles are just non-Jews. Just a quick show of hands. Okay. Do we have any Jews in the room here tonight? Just a quick. That's probably the better way to do that. Anyone with Jewish blood? All right. Anybody else? Okay. You are outnumbered. Badly outnumbered in here. But there's neither Jew nor Gentile, right? Bond or free. And so we get so used to the idea that God loves Jews and God loves Gentiles. Why wouldn't he save the Gentiles? I mean, we're good people. We're nice people. But it was an amazing thing to have written in the Jewish Scriptures that God would have an interest not only in the Jews, but also in the Gentiles. And that's a truth that we get used to to such a degree that we lose our awe of the fact that God loves Gentiles as well as Jews. I mean, the Gentiles have been long the persecutors of the Jews and, and, uh, and all. To this very day, many, many observant Jews uh, pray a prayer every single morning that's made up of 13 blessings. And here are three of the blessings that they pray in their prayer. They pray this to, to God. Blessed are you that you did not make me a non-Jew. Hey, 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 hey. What are you talking about? But even to this day, sometimes the Jews can look, an observant Jew, look and say, God is not interested in the Gentiles, and I'm so thankful I was not born a Gentile. The blessing goes on and says, Blessed are you, speaking to God, that you did not make me a slave, and blessed are you that you did not make me a woman. Well, nothing wrong with that, really. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I just missed on one. Some Half of the room missed out on two of those, or all three of them, three strikes and you're out. But it's an amazing thing. To the Jewish mind, it was an amazing thing that God would have an interest in the Gentiles, that he would save us. And so he has done it. God said he would do it. And the room is full of those kinds of people in the room here tonight. This is the Lord.
the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to, to Him, speaking of the Messiah, whom man despises, to Him whom the nation abhors. This will be the reaction of the world to the coming of the Messiah. To the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also, also shall worship, because the Lord uh, of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, He has chosen you. And so here is the fact that the Messiah would be, though successful in his calling, overall the reaction of the world would be that he's despised, abhorred by both the Gentile world and the Jewish world, but that in the end, everyone, including princes and kings and everyone, will bow down before him. And of course, and we even sang about it today, Philippians chapter 2 speaks of that, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on the earth, and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But again, we look back on this and we say, oh, yes, of course, of course, of course, yes. And then, But here it is, 750 years prior, Jesus comes on the scene and fulfills it 100%. And thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. And I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth and to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. So here's the Messiah going to come into the world as a covenant to people. A covenant is a contract. It's an agreement. It is the basis upon which we are able to have a relationship with God. And when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, this is a new covenant is in my blood. He came to establish a new covenant, just as Isaiah said that he would do. That you may say to the prisoners, those that are in bondage to sin, go forth uh, to those who are in darkness, show yourself. And so he would come into the world to set people who are in bondage to sin, free from that bondage to sin, bring them out of spiritual darkness, and so he has. And uh, most of us in this room are proof of the fact that he has the power to do that. And they shall feed along the roads. And this here in verse 9, or the latter part of verse 9, speaks of the blessings uh, of uh, the servant's rule in the kingdom age. It fast-forwards to uh, on the other side of Jesus' second coming when he establishes the thousand-year reign of Christ in the world. This is what the world is going to be like. This is where his life ultimately plays out to, followed by a new heaven and a new earth. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst. Not a single person hungering or thirsting in the whole world. Neither uh, heat nor sun shall strike them, for he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highway shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and from the west and those from the land of Sinem. We don't know where that is exactly. Some people guess that it might be China because of the way that the word is, but it's talking about people coming to worship Jesus from all over the world. The blessed 
condition of the world during the thousand-year reign of Christ as Isaiah receives this revelation of the future of the world under the Messiah. He calls out on all of creation to just begin to praise the Lord for uh, the comfort of these promises. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and sing, break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have mercy on his afflicted. And so we have, you know, all the way verses 1 through 9, we're able to look back on those things and say, yes, Jesus came. And just as Isaiah said, they were fulfilled 100%. What an amazing Old Testament portrait of Jesus. And yet here we get to the latter part here of verse 9 all the way through verse 13 and that future kingdom age, uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ, the new heaven, the new earth, following that, all of that is going to be fulfilled as surely as verses 1 uh, through the first half of verse 9 was fulfilled. And we will have a part in that future. Now, in verse 14, <clears throat> the Lord returns then to the current situation of the Jews and um, uh, in their... Uh, writing to them in their Babylonian captivity. But Zion, Zion refers to Jerusalem, said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. So here they are. Isaiah sees the day when they will be in the Babylonian captivity, and they will begin to think in their minds, That's it. We push God too far. And now he's put us in Babylon. We are never, ever going to go back to Israel. We are never, ever going to have the life with God that we once threw away. All of it's gone. All of it is, is hopeless. God has completely forsaken us. He has forgotten about us. And, and, and that was the strength of their feeling. We've blown it so bad, God is through with us. I don't know if you've ever been there, but that's where they were. And then God responds and says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? What is a nursing child? Very young child. And mothers keep their eyes on their little babies, I'll tell you. If you, you, know, you when I do the baby dedications, you know, and uh, none of you close your eyes, you watch them on the Sunday morning, the mom is watching me. I've got her baby. <laughs> One praying to God and then the other eye is open to make sure that I don't drop their little one here. No, you don't. A, a mother of a newborn child never forgets about their newborn child. Can a mother, a woman, forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? And yet God, you know, He watches everything that goes on in the world and and he said, surely they may forget, you know, maybe one out of a million mothers isn't this kind of a mother. They just put the baby in a corner and come back whenever, you know, talking about days or I don't know what, you know, so that children do get abused. They do get neglected and all. So God says, surely there may be even some among a brand new mother with a brand new baby that could forget their baby as rare as it is. And yet God says, I will never do that. I won't do what is one in a million among mothers of newborn children. I will not forget you. And that's important to realize when we're in the doghouse. When we have messed up, we have blown it, and we are bearing the consequences of our sin because God is trying to teach us a lesson or refine us related to that sin. 
to realize that as hard as those seasons can be, he never forgets us, never forgets where we are. And then he goes on and he says, very interestingly, he said, See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Now, when uh, any time, especially when you're younger, you kind of stop it as you get a little bit older. But when people want to remember something and, they, and not forget it, what do they do? They take a pen out and they write it on their hand, don't they? Why? Because your hand is just always there. Oh, there, I, they got a call, you know. Uh, Paula or whatever it might be. So you, you've got the thing, and, and whatever you write on your hand is, is to remind you of something. And, uh, and so uh, that's what we do. And God is saying here that he never forgets his people. He's constantly aware of us as if we were a tattoo or something that was written, inscribed on the palms of his hands. And, of course, Jesus bears a reminder of us that's even greater than any kind of note or tattoo on the palm of his hands. He's got the scars from the nails of the cross at Calvary to remind him of us. Interesting to realize that in verse 16, that word inscribed, it can mean to cut in and to carve. And surely it's a shadow speaking of a far fulfillment of Jesus one day having his hands pierced and, and those holes in his hands uh, speaking as a constant reminder to him of us. And, of course, that's consistent with uh, any passage in the Scripture. Ultimately, its highest application is to him. He says, your walls are continually before me, the walls of Jerusalem. Maybe there's um, some of you, you, those of you who are older and your uh, children are grown, and they live in another part of the world or another city, and because they live in that city, your mind is always on that city. So let's say they live in Cleveland and a headline occurs or something, a weather report or some kind of a disaster, some kind of a good thing happens in Cleveland. You're all ears. I've got children in Cleveland. I've got grandchildren in Cleveland. And, and so we're all ears related to that uh, because we're connected to that city. And so here is this uh, uh, the places have our focus, have our attention, uh, because those that we love are there, and the Lord speaks concerning the walls of Jerusalem, that they are continually before him, not because the walls are so beautiful, though that they are, but because his people are there. Your sons shall make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. Lift up your eyes, look around and see. All those, these gather together and come to you. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourself with them all, uh, with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. And so uh, the Lord speaks to them concerning the future of Zion. They had no hope that they would ever be in, uh, go into Zion or Jerusalem again. And God said, not only you're going to come into uh, Jerusalem once again, you are going to return, but your return is going to, into Jerusalem is your presence in the city in the future is going to be like jewelry on a bride, with, on a bride and her wedding day. A bride looks maybe the most beautiful she looks in her whole life on her 
wedding day. You add jewelry to that. Wow! And so God says, no, I'm going to adorn the city of Jerusalem once again with you, and it's going to be beautiful the way that I want to make it beautiful as a result. For your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for its inhabitants. God says they're going to return to the city of Jerusalem, but it's not going to be able to hold them. There's going to be so many people there. They're going to fill the land once again, as well as the city of Jerusalem. And those who swallowed you up will be far away as the Jews returned to the land. The Gentiles then uh, vacated it. The children you will have after you've lost the others going into captivity will say again in your ears, this place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. And so imagine being in the Babylonian captivity and God is speaking of a future that is that glorious. And God loves happy endings. I hope all of us know that. He loves happy endings. Even when we have messed it up as bad as we can mess it up, He still likes happy endings, and He has the power to bring them about as we repent and turn back to them. And He did that with the children of Israel continually, and He does it in our lives as well. Just a moment. He's giving me a couple of names. I'll shout them out. You just stand as you hear your name. Hold on just a second here. Now, we like that to all stay private, don't we? And I'm glad God is a private, discreet, confidential God. And then you shall say in your heart, Who has begotten these for me since I've lost my children and am desolate, had no hope of being in this place again, a captive and wandering to and fro? And who has brought these up, given me children once again? And there I was left alone, but these, where are they? And they just marvel at God's grace in restoring their lives back to them. God is amazing. And then he says, uh, the Lord uh, speaks of the fact that Jerusalem, he continues in verse 22, will be the, uh, become the home of the Jews and the spiritual center of the whole world one day. Again, uh, it happened when the remnant returned to the land of, uh, 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 returned to Jerusalem with Nehemiah and Ezra and so forth. When they, Zerubbabel, they come back into the land, but they, they never ruled the whole world spiritually. This has its farest fulfillment, its fullest fulfillment in the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand in an oath to the nations. So God is swearing this is going to come to pass. And set up my standard for the peoples. And they will bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. It's kind of the ultimate expression of the humiliation of Israel's former enemies. And then you will know that I am the Lord, for they will not be ashamed who wait for me. So in the kingdom age one day, there's not going to be any more anti-Semitism. The Gentiles uniformly will love the Jews in the kingdom age. And in fact, Powerful Gentiles, referred to as kings and queens here, will then make it their joy to uh, escort the Jews into the worship of uh, the Messiah and the Savior, Jesus, there uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem. And so that's the future of the city. And uh, again, this is blowing their minds in terms of what God is saying. God is saying this is absolutely sure. And because this is 
uh, future for even us. He lets us know this is the future of Jerusalem as well. I'll tell you, I, you know, I don't know how you are. You, you know, you watch the news and you see the ISIS this and then the Hezbollah and then who's threatening to destroy the Jews next and all. And I hear these people. I don't know how alarmed you get over things and, and all. Obviously, it's a tremendous concern to the whole world and uh, our leaders need to have God's mind on how to deal with some, uh, something that is looking to annihilate an entire group of people off the face of the planet. Uh, the Jews, but there's the Jews who tell any Christian that goes to Israel that's willing to listen. They wipe us out, and you think you're safe, they come after you next. And if you don't know that as a Christian, you ought to know that. The only reason the persecution against us by that particular element of Islam is not as strong as it is against the Jews is because they haven't wiped the Jews out yet. As soon as they do that, then they'll turn on us, even as they're doing now. In the martyrdom, the slaughter, brutal, horrible slaughter of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. But when they talk about the annihilation of the Jews and driving them into the Mediterranean Sea and all of that is not going to happen. Just isn't going to happen. And I don't know what God will do. I mean, we know something. Well, I do know what God will do, so I take that back, but I don't want to go there in this sermon here uh, tonight. So it ends very well for the Jews and not for their enemies. And so the Lord speaks and continues in this vein. Shall the prey, that is the Jews, be taken from the mighty? Speaking of Babylon, here they're in Babylonian captivity. The Jews are thinking, how in the world could God ever deliver us from the strength and the power of Babylon? If you've ever went to the San Francisco Zoo as a kid, two o'clock, I don't know if they still do it, they feed the lions. It's the greatest thing for a young boy to see. Oh, man. It's right up there with shooting bows and arrows straight up into the air, living dangerously. What if they got out? But then they throw that meat to them and you watch them play with the meat, you know. The only thing that could be better if they're like throwing live stuff in there. But since they're not, they're throwing these slabs of dead animals and all. They, listen, they're lions. They come from the jungle and the prayer, whatever, you know, the savannah. So they want to pretend that it was at least alive sometimes, so they'll bat it around like it's moving and then poof. But they put that meat under their paw, and it's like, you're never going to get this back from me. And that's how they felt in Babylon. Babylon's got us. We are never going to get out. And the Lord says, shall the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives, that is the Jews, the captives uh, of the righteous, shall they be delivered? That's the question that's asked. And the Lord responds to that and says, even the captives of the mighty of Babylon shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible will be delivered. For I will contend with the him who contends with you. I will save your children. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh and they will be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And again, I come back to these groups that want to destroy the Jews. God is not done with the Jews yet. They need to be saved by putting their faith in Christ, just like every other person needs to be in the world. But there is a 70th seven of Daniel's prophecy, one more seven-year period in which God is going to deal with the Jews so that their eyes will be enlightened to the fact that Jesus is their Messiah. It's going to be a very difficult seven years for them, but that light will go on for them. 
and uh, God is not finished with them, and God is going to protect them until He accomplishes His plan through them as a people, and their enemies are going to end up uh, destroying themselves, drinking their own blood as with sweet wine. I don't know. You could, we could wake up any time in the morning and see that these groups have turned on each other. You know, Shia, Sunni, whoever hates the Jews anywhere around the world, even beyond the uh, Islamic world, and find that they have uh, supernaturally taken their eyes off of the Jews and now uh, focused on their own destruction. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And so when God delivered them out of uh, Babylon, everyone would know only God could do that. Chapter 50, thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it uh, to whom I have sold you? And so the Jews were again in the Babylonian captivity. And in the Old Testament, Israel is likened to the wife of Jehovah. We are called the bride of Christ, of Jesus, in the New Testament. But the imagery of the Old Testament is that the children of Israel are the wife of Jehovah and that they entered into that relationship with God uh, at Mount Sinai when they entered into a covenant with him based upon the law. And so God views them and uses that imagery all the way through the Old Testament. Now they're in Babylonian captivity and it feels like God has divorced them. God is through with them. And, uh, and God is going to reply to them, I haven't divorced you. Uh, you never saw me serve you with papers or anything like that. We never finalized this at all. And in fact, I never left you. I never separated you from you. You're the one that separated uh, from me in this relationship. And so this is the imagery. It talks also about of which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you. And so in those days, if the head of a household, the father, uh, got into debt, he could sell himself into slavery for a period of years to work off the debt. But then he could also come home and say, uh, Honey, I've got some bad news. I sold you into slavery as well today. And then call all the kids together and break the news to them as well. So the whole family would go into slavery in order to try and work off the debt that the family had uh, incurred. And, and so God is going to use this imagery now and how they felt, how hopeless their situation was. God is through with us. We're sold into slavery. We'll never get out. And God responds by saying, for your own iniquities, you've sold yourself. I never sold you. I never had a debt that was so big that I had to sell you into slavery in order to earn money to pay off a debt I had paid. You are in the bondage that you are in, not because I dropped the ball or I flubbed in any kind of a way. You are in the pickle that you're in because of your own disobedience to the Word of God. And so he's reminding them, don't blame me for your situation. doesn't mean that God isn't going to then uh, pull them out of their situation, but God has to bring us to a place where we recognize that, hey, I'm in the mess that I'm in, because I got into idolatry, because I got into sin, I got into selfishness. And it isn't because God wasn't powerful enough or wise enough or loving or kind enough uh, to keep me from uh, the bondage that my sin was destined to take me in. And he said, and for your transgressions, 
your mother has been put away. The divorce, so to speak, or the separation has occurred because of uh, you separated from me and not because I separated from you. And why, when I came, uh, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? And God continually came to the southern kingdom of Judah over and over again, calling on them to repent, turn back to him so they wouldn't go into bondage, so that uh, all of these things wouldn't happen uh, to them. And uh, and he couldn't be faulted for failing to warn them and to call them. And he said, but none of you heeded me, none of you. uh, There was none to answer. Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water. And die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. God says, you are in bondage to Babylon, not because I dropped the ball, not because I am, don't have any power or I've done something wrong. I have the power to do anything that needs to happen. Your situation, the bed that you're lying in, is the bed that you have made. And then God continues to um, uh, paint a picture of His Messiah who is to come here in verses uh, uh, 4 through 9. We studied this in uh, some uh, detail uh, this morning as God gives us the, uh, the, a, a look at the devotional life of the Messiah of Jesus 750 years before he came into the world. In other words, God said, all right, I told you about his virgin birth. I told you about where he's going to be born. I told you about his death, his burial, his resurrection. I told you all of these prophecies concerning him. But I also want you to recognize him on the basis of his devotional life. Watch him. Watch him how he spends his morning. Watch his devotional to God. See, and, and then put him to the test as my Messiah based upon his devotional life as well. And so God gives us this wonderful glimpse into the devotional life of Jesus. And Jesus speaks here. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. And so... Uh, the morning time with the Lord, both for Jesus but also for us as Christians, as the body of Christ, is a time for our capacity for speech to be sanctified, to be set aside for God's use. God, I've done enough talking all of my life (laughs) on my own behalf. Now I'm saved. Now I belong to you. I want this capacity of speech, the powerful capacity of being able to communicate. I want this to be used by you to make a difference in the day that I'm heading out into today. That was Jesus' prayer, and uh, the Father did that through his life. He said, I only speak that which the Father has told me to speak over and over again. He declared it in his public ministry, and he received that from the Father morning by morning. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear. That is the Father speaking to Jesus. So uh, to hear is the learned. Uh, The Lord God has opened my ear. So here is the sanctifying, the making holy, not only of our capacity of speech, Uh, to begin each day, but this quiet time with the Lord that Jesus had and we're to have as well is a time in which our ears are then sanctified or set aside uh, unto God. And then the Messiah continues here in describing his uh, devotional life with the Father, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. 
I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And so here we're clearly on the morning of Jesus' crucifixion, a description of the abuse that was meted out to him by both Jew and Gentile leaders on that day. Some of what is described here in verse 6 is, uh, is a description that we don't even have in terms of the New Testament. And the New Testament is quite graphic in its description. So here we learn things that we wouldn't even otherwise know without knowing uh, the book of Isaiah. And yet Jesus, knowing that all of this was going to come his way, not only the death upon the cross, but the abuse that he would um, experience prior to the death of the cross, each and every morning as he met with the Father, even the long days and years before the morning of the cross occurred, Part of his devotional life was a surrender to the Father's will for his life, no matter what price I pay in order to be faithful to you, I commit to that before the day even begins. And then when the day came when this level of rejection and abuse uh, was going to come and become a part of his his reality and his history. Uh, he didn't turn away. And, I, and I, the point that I make as I did this morning is this time with the Lord is a time to say in the morning, Lord, I don't care how they treat me. I don't care what people say, what they do. I don't care how hard it's going to be to obey you and live for you today. I choose to do that. This morning, as the day begins, I will follow Jesus, no turning back. He said, for the Lord will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. And I love verses 7 through 9. Again, here is the beautiful effect of Jesus' morning-by-morning time with the Father, the effect that it had upon him as he left that time of devotion with the Father, so to speak. And he headed out, verse 7, into the day with a confidence and a boldness that he wouldn't otherwise have had. He is near, he said, verse 8, who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. And who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And so there's the confidence Jesus had. The Father is going to bless me today. There was the uh, recognition that I'm heading out into the world. What I'm going to see out there, though it uh, portrays itself as being reality, it isn't really reality. Uh, all of that is growing old like a garment. There's no future in it. The future is with God. The future is with obedience to Him. And these great truths fortified Him as He headed in uh, into the day. We remember Jesus, all God, all man, all at the same time in His incarnation. But everything that He did during the three and a half years of His public ministry, He did not out of His deity. He did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon Him when He began His public ministry. 
And so when we look at this and say, yes, well, of course, he's the son of God. And I mean, he had a relationship with the father that none of us could ever have. And we, we tend to think that he operated out of all that was his by virtue of being di- divine during his three and a half year ministries, uh, three and a half year ministry. And he didn't do that. He said, I only do what the father calls me to do. And I only do what the Holy Spirit empowers me to do. And so He needed these same things from the Father on a daily basis, and He received them even as we do. Don't put a giant gap between the devotional life of Jesus and our devotional life because He operated in His public ministry in the same resources that are available to us, the power of the Holy Spirit, communion with God. He said, "...who among you fears the Lord?" who obeys the voice of his servant, who walks in darkness and has no light. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. And so here is this um, uh, Israel uh, needed to follow the servant's example here, Messiah's example, and all of this related to their devotional life. In other words, difficulty is going to come. But it doesn't mean that we walk away from God when difficult things occur. We need to obey God, follow the Messiah's example in all of this, no matter how hard it is to follow Him in the fallenness of this world. There's a funny thing about this devotional life side of things. Um, Sometimes, uh, being a pastor, I, I tell as few people as I need to that I'm a pastor. Not because I'm ashamed of it at all, Sometimes I'll use it as like a, to see if I can get a spiritual conversation going. So what do you do? A gailer when he says, well, I represent the big three. See where the converse said, the big three? Who are the big three? Well, I'm glad you asked. Well, you know, the Trinity is really a triunity, and uh, it's a mystery, but uh, here's the Father and the Son. So Gail has his own way. But sometimes people will ask, and I say, well, you know, I'm a pastor. And uh, then you see, and then pretty soon they put all your stuff in the bag in like two and a half seconds, give it to you, and they want you out of, <laughs> out of their sight. It's a lot of fun being a pastor. And then other people will say, oh, really, that's interesting, and you, you can start a conversation. But I don't let everybody know that I'm a pastor because I want them to treat me like a normal person sometimes. You know, so they start, everybody starts counting. I was in a conversation just the other day, and uh, this guy is swearing like... I wanted to go buy him a Navy uniform, put him on a submarine. I mean, nobody, this guy, nobody was beating him, you know. And I just thinking there the whole time, I'm thinking to myself, now it'd be interesting if this conversation turns to where he finds out I'm a pastor. Because inevitably when that happens, somewhere down the road, then they find out that I'm a pastor. They turn all red. I don't care how macho they are. And they start to think, how many times did I say that word in front of a man of the cloth or whatever kind of a thing is. But sometimes as a pastor, there's a point here. Sometimes as a pastor, when people will come in and their world is just completely upside down. I mean... You listen to the marriage and the problems that are there, and you think, wow, this is really, really hard, what this person is in the middle of. Or they're dealing with chronic pain. Or they own a business that's about to go under for a variety of reasons. And you realize this is a human being just like you. 
and all the emotion that they're feeling and all. And then, and then sometimes there's a, almost, almost always when I'm in that kind of a situation, somewhere in the course of things, it might not be the first thing that I talk about, but before that person leaves my office, I will ask them if they're a Christian. I'll say, would you tell me a little something about your devotional life, about your relationship with God? Do you have a time in which you read His Word each day to begin the day and talk with Him about your problems? And have you learned how to hear Him? And um, is He a friend to you? And these kind of things. And sometimes people think you talk to them as a pastor about a devotional life and it's like something that we take a course online. And it's like, oh, question number one is, do you have a devotional life? Because they know I'm going to say no. And now they got us behind the eight ball and they've got the power spot now in the conversation because I feel so guilty. Nothing of the sort. Nothing of the sort. How heartbreaking. How heartbreaking would it be for a Christian man or woman to lose their marriage and to lose their family and then to one day realize I didn't care enough about them to establish this part of my life and then to realize sometimes months or sometimes years later That situation would have never become what it became and that divorce would have never happened if I had established that in my life because out of that, I would have treated her completely different. I would have seen everything different or I would have had the strength to endure a difficulty that I wasn't drawing upon on a daily basis. And the woman toward the man as well. You think about how many businesses that Christians own go down the tubes and they're completely lost. Not all marriages, not all businesses, not all problems tied to this, but imagine losing everything in life and then realizing that I lost all of that because I didn't establish this as a part of my life and if I had, I would have handled everything differently So much hinges upon this. And that's why Isaiah closes by the Holy Spirit in talking about the devotional life of the Messiah calling on us to follow in his footsteps. Have to be careful of what Christianity has become in the United States of America. If I was preaching in Uganda, I would say we have to be careful about what Christianity has become in Uganda. But I don't pastor in Uganda. I pastor in the United States of America. And so Christianity gets formed around the culture. Fast culture, fast, go, go, go. Pressure, pressure, entertainment. Eyes, 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 ears, ears, ears. All of this kind of thing. Go, go, go. And God gets pushed off to the side. And as we mentioned this morning, Christianity is a relationship with God. And it's possible, and it's a great temptation as a Christian in the United States of America today to live all of our lives as a Christian And miss what Christianity is. A personal relationship with God in which he becomes my best friend. But it involves time being spent with him. And it involves uh, communication occurring. And so he speaks to us here and says, Listen, 
walk with God, stay with God, commune with God, obey God, no matter how difficult it is in order uh, to do that. That's what Christianity really is. And we're in a time in which the Christianity, as it's defined by the world, and I'll tell you, it has happened in me as much as in anyone. The world is changing so quickly that as God chops away these things where we say, well, you know, that's just the way that we do it over here, or, you know, I'm accepted with that. I don't really want the Christianity that's, you know, really in the Bible and and, uh, as it's described here. I don't really need that. Some people need that, but I don't need that. And we're going to find ourselves in a place where we the only Christianity we need and want is the one in the Bible and not the one that comes out of the tradition of men or even out of our own noggins, the Christianity that we form in our own heart and we say, that's, what I'll, that's how I'll walk with you, God. That's the relationship we'll have. We'll have this on my terms, not on your terms. I'm an American. That's how this works. The greatest country in the world. And then God warns in verse 11, and we close, of course, with this. And he talks about those who reject the Messiah's model here. They leave God when things get hard and, and they don't obey the Father and what's revealed in that relationship with the Father. And he said, look, all of you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. God said, you can do it. We still have a relationship, so to speak. You'll still end up in heaven on the basis of faith in my son. But ultimately, you're going to get burned. And you are going to live to regret it. Let me just say, in closing, to anyone who sits here tonight, and you do not have a consistent, devotional relationship with God, morning by morning and your marriage is about to end your world is on its head every kind of problem in the world is surrounding you you have you have you have got to establish this as a part of your life you do not want to have the light go on months from now years from now after you've lost everything and then look back with regret and realize it could have all been saved, it could have all been different if I had just even changed this one area in my life. It is not the Christianity that is described in the Bible that was modeled by Jesus and that He died on the cross to provide to us. That's the Christianity that we need. And if you're in that kind of place tonight, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately afterwards. And we'd love to talk with you if you want to talk with somebody about that and getting that turned around and helpful hints kind of and tips for getting that established in your life. You need it so desperately. I need it so desperately. I hate to think of the person that I would be if I, if I did not have this kind of time with God on a regular basis. And if I did not open my eyes up and say, by the grace of God, this is the Christianity that I want to live, the Christianity in this book, not the one that people are telling me I can live and still get into heaven. What's the one that's in this book? And we all need that. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Thank you, Lord, for our Savior. Even as we have sung tonight, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for the description that you've given to us in chapter 49 of him, these things that only you could know about him, uh, come to the earth from into the world from the foundations of the world, Lord, and the universe. And we thank you so much for uh, the description of him and his fulfillment of it perfectly in here, but just a, 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 a appetizer, a, uh, an early dish in the series of the meal, the greatest yet to come in chapters 52 and 53 in describing him. We thank you for saving us tonight, Lord. Thank you for making salvation free. Thank you for the confidence that we have as Christians that one day we will be in heaven, that we will be a part of that millennial reign and one day a part of the new heaven and the new earth and all of this with you is going to go on forever and ever and ever in all of its glory. We pray for our own selves individually here tonight. We pray for those around us. And we ask, Lord, if there's even a single person here tonight who is missing the relationship side of Christianity, that tonight you would speak to them to move from that and establish this morning by morning with you. And we pray that, Lord, as they do, you will meet with them in such a powerful way and that you will do as you have done with us and with untold millions of Christians down through the ages. Take them by the hand and give them revelation from your scriptures and listen to their prayers and put prayers on their heart to pray and then answer their prayers and speak to them and teach them, Lord, how to hear you and to hear your voice. And we pray for that blessing in their lives as we all turn in a greater measure to the Christianity that we see in our Savior, desiring to experience it. And Lord, we pray tonight that if any marriage or family or relationship or business or crisis is in any person's life and it's needless because of a neglect in this area, in some Christian's life, that you cause that light to go on and help them, Lord, not to do anything permanent in that situation until they have turned to you and established this in their life and then begin to experience the blessings and the afterglow of it. We ask that of you this evening. Thank you, Lord, for the week that lies out ahead of us. We pray that you use our ears and you use our mouth and you use our hands and our feet as your own to minister the glory of your truth and the beauty of your presence and reality to the world all around us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you're here tonight and you are not a Christian, you have not yet put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Heaven and hell hangs in the balance on the basis of that decision. And I don't have time to go into that at this point tonight. But again, these same men and women that are up in front, we would love to talk with you to confess your sin, put your faith in Jesus, and begin the relationship with God that you've been created for.
and it's all there for the asking. 